those kids out for us. Animal news from ABC7. A four-week-old female mountain lion kitten has been discovered and marked in the Santa Monica Mountains. Researchers with the National Park Service and biologists with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife found the young animal at a den site. Her mother is the popular P23 mountain lion and researchers suspect that her father may be P23's half-brother, P30. The two animals were documented traveling together for three days, and three months later, P23 gave birth. Genetic testing will be done to determine if P30 is the kitten's father, which would make him a first-time dad and kind of incestuous. Congrats, P30. I'm from here, here's the story. Welcome back to the Townies Podcast. I am Kim Maxwell, and I am a Townie. I am a Townie who loves other people's stories. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. And for 25 years, the raw and vulnerable musings of my brilliant and courageous students have sent me home filled with hope. Some of my beloved students are seasoned professionals. Some have never even been on a stage before. But there they are, up in front of a live audience, flinging themselves and their brand new words into the abyss. Their reward? They have been heard. They matter. Their words matter. And the audience? Well, they have just officially been granted permission to do the same to go out there somewhere and take a big old risk. And that is the sacred exchange between terrified storyteller and gracious audience member. Permission. I love people's stories because stories are what connect us. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the Neighborhood. Episode 10. Love. Am I right? Today on the Townies podcast, Lightning Strikes Thrice, written and performed by Asa Larmanth, proudly rocking a white spot smack dab in the middle of his curly brown hair, Asa watches more documentaries, wears more sleeveless shirts, and drinks more coffee than anyone I know. An actor and a writer, he is also the co-producer of our Townies podcast. I've shared a bed with people having sex three times in my life. It's not a fun experience, for, for me at least. For them, it's, well, well, let's be honest, probably not really that great either. As great as high school sex in a barn after a lot of alcohol could feasibly be. People having sex in the same bed as me, time number one. High school. I'm on the young side of 15, and we would have parties in my friend's barn. I'm from Vermont, where at least seven-eighths of all parties took place in barns. <laughs> After five or six shots and a woodchuck or two, it was bedtime. Mattresses, me, my crush, and my buddy Jack. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. 
Night progresses, bing, bang, boom, and I'm sexiled to some insulation a few feet to the left. I was woken the next morning by a white-faced hornet stinging me on my cheek. Nine years before time number one, I had my first fake kiss. On the bus in first grade, when Megan Hunter decided I was her boyfriend. Megan Hunter is now addicted to heroin, last I heard. My first real kiss was with the girl at a writer's conference when I was on the older side of 15 years old and coincidentally was the second time in my life I had ever smoked weed. It was the last night of the writer's conference, so there was a dance, and the dance had a disco ball, so naturally, I was doing that. <laughs> Following the fairy light reflections, clad in my Hawaiian t-shirt, not a care in the world, bouncing along to call me maybe, when a girl in the corner of the barn, yeah, it was a barn, taps me on the shoulder and tells me she likes the white spot in my hair. I'm stoned, so naturally I say, I like my white spot too. That's the wrong answer. Follow-up answer, but I, I like your hair more than I like my hair though. Nailed it. Then, the big one. So, I've kind of spent this whole conference looking for a guy to, you know, fuck. Interested? Smoke swirling in my brain, call me maybe, fading out in the distance, Hawaiian shirt hanging limply and forlornly on my body. Uh, cool. <laughs> Move to a classroom, tongue in my mouth, a quick break to tell me my nose was running. She was being really nice to me though, all things considered. I don't really think I was what she had in mind at this point. Another break a bit later, this one for carrot cake. Really made the night, you know, I was, I was starving. Finally, will you walk me to my room? Hell yeah, I would. I'd walk her to her room, hug her goodnight, and go pass out in my Hawaiian t-shirt feeling like a champ. People having sex in the same bed as me, time number two. Still high school, 16 years old, me, my good buddy Jack, and his girlfriend, my crush, camp up in Lincoln next to a burned down house in a pond. Blah, 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 and I'm fetal positioned in the corner of a tent with a groaning, moaning octopus bumping up against me at a steady, steady, steady rhythm. Say what you want about Jack, but the kid's got stamina. I lost my virginity a year later to a girl whose friend who had just died from being struck by lightning. Art camp. 17, and I'm digging slam poetry, too poofy hair, shoes with holes in them, and this girl. My friends, years later, dubbed it grief sex, which definitely sets a tone for the next three or four years of my love life in my opinion. <laughs> Grief sex is uncomfortable to say out loud. I learned later I wasn't the only one to help her with her sadness. Uh, Nico and Mika and I, the triumvirate first step in the morning period. Tough on a psyche to be one of the mini smitten, the artsy Facebook photographs of lounging together in the moonlight after the fact, well, didn't help either. 
I stole a Bible a few weeks later during driver's ed held in the basement of a church. I wrote her a Facebook message and told her about the heresy, kind of like a brag. Like, who doesn't like a rebel, right? No response. A few weeks after that, I had my pill-hopping fling with that acid queen. Now, I've only ever done acid once. She's done it a baker's dozen, and all at school, claiming it makes math more interesting, which really cannot be argued with. Caught by the cops with a few tabs on here, on her, and a year probation to look forward to, she turned to electric-themed poetry and ambien, Oxy and me. At this point, I think it's important for me to tell you I've made two girls watch the Simpsons movie with me as a date. <laughs> Rewind, I'm 16 and I have my first girlfriend. We go ice skating and she makes out with me in motion, skating forwards, which consequently makes me have to skate backwards. A skill I never picked up, but had to learn how to do and fast in order to maintain some semblance of lip interlocking. She was the first victim of the Simpsons feature-length film and should have been the last. You would think I'd have learned my lesson. No relationship can withstand the tribulations brought on by, by a showing of the Simpsons movie. A one-week relationship, baby. My record set and just waiting to be improved on. I would get up to three months' relationships pretty consistently. Never more. Sometimes less. Now, my acid queen was, coincidentally, the second girlfriend subjected to the rigmarole of that film. You'd think being high would help the experience, but no. She faded out like the end of a trip, but she left me two pills, unknown variety, that I never did end up taking. Now, it's time for the big leagues, where the big I love you comes into play. The whiskey and caffeine pills, the 36 hours awake that ended with an I love you from me, and then, okay, from her. <laughs> this will be revisited in quite the surreal way three years later. But in the moment, it was more existentially crushing than surreal. <laughs> Off to, Scotland, off to Scotland, off to college with one more I love you in Uig, and I love you back, though I don't think I've, either of us really knew what we were talking about. Three letters and a grand silence, as well as a mutual Instagram follow for posterity's sake. <laughs> it's not easy being green and 18 in college. Being green makes you a fuck. And being a fuck means you are a fuck and will cheat on two people and sleep around a little before you realize you are a fuck and do your best to cut that shit out. You will inevitably become enamored with an honest-to-God witch full of magic and ghosts. You will be seduced by a German billionaire royalty who seduced many other boys just like you. You will come out the other side of your fuckery hopeless and hating yourself and not wanting to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it. You can't cheat and lie and not own up. I cheated, I lied, I cried, I didn't apologize for a year, I hurt some friends, I lost my faith, 
I lost the magic, and I tried to make it up to my sins by trying to help a dark soul find some light. Because, well, dealing with darkness rubs off, and darkness, well, that was what I deserved. Cue people having sex in the same bed as me, time number three. Time number three. Sophomore in college, with my dark-haired, exotically beautiful girlfriend spending the weekend in Cambridge. I hate Cambridge. Her friend, who gave us a ride to Cambridge, has been going to Harvard parties, taking on a British alter ego, a terrible accent to boot, fake name, just trying to get laid, according to her. But she struck out, damn it to hell, proclaimed in a grating cockney, and now would rather spend the last night with her friends. My girlfriend's friend will be staying the night with us, doing naked yoga and waking me up from a nightmare to a soul-crushing, heartbreaking sound at 4 a.m. I am paralyzed for one, two, three, four, five minutes until I break. I leave the apartment. I find a bench by the river, chain-smoking Marv 27s that I paid way too much money for, wishing that man wrapped a newspaper under the tree would take one of those empties and bash me over the head with it. The car ride home the next day was awkward. Fast forward to a no, I don't love you, and no, I can't love you. Said by me, detached and stuck in a soap opera, I for sure had a big hand in producing. Two lovely people who both deserve better. You know, I would tell myself, well, at least I didn't cheat. I'm getting better. But they deserved much better than that boy who thought he was looking for repentance, but was really just looking for nothing at all. My buddy Jack and my high school crush are still together. Five years now, I think, and they are desperately in love. You know, I didn't know how they did it, but I've always been happy for them. Well, not always. But, but more often than not. I mean, there was hope in them. Uh, a magic to them, and I look back and nod my head approvingly. No, I, I, I can do that now. Lights up on one text message last night. I love you. I've loved you since the caffeine pills and the whiskey, and when I said, okay, instead of saying it back. Let's run away, let's go to South Africa, Asa. Let's give it another shot. I said no. I said, that's not fair to anyone, and I don't love you anymore. I'm sorry. I can do that now. I can say with conviction that I have never had sex with someone in a bed a third party was sharing. No, I've done bad things. I've never done that. <laughs> it's right now. I am 21 years old. I have been in a relationship for nine months. I am truly in love, in a good love. She is not addicted to pills. I haven't made her watch the Simpsons movie. She can also say with conviction that she has never had sex with someone in a bed shared by someone else. She wrote me a list of 21 things I love about Asa for my 21st birthday. I told her all this, this, this long list of events and folks and juices and lights and noise one night. I wanted her to know that a tone had been set. She laid out a list just as long as mine. We hugged, and she kissed me, and I held her hand, and she said, I love you, and I said, I love you, back. We nestled together and fell asleep, and we slept really, really well.
You just heard from Asa Larmanth. Dust Devil, written and performed by Jemmy Reese McDonald. A soft-spoken whirlwind of thought-provoking material, Jemmy sits herself down on the floor in front of whoever is reading a free write so as not to miss a single word. Insightful, generous, grounded, attentive, dedicated, meditative. I'm pretty sure Jemmy's spirit animal is a sea turtle. Sunday morning, 7 a.m. I receive an obscene phone call from what sounds like a young woman. She says, I found your number written on the inside of a matchbook at the coffee shop. What? I ask. I can't really hear you. Many urgent and acceleratingly explicit details follow then. I want to fuck! <laughs> <laughs> I hope you find someone worthy of you, I said. (laughs) Which is met with silence. She hangs up. But because I'm working hard to take care with the distance from here to here, I don't say, listen, kid, you've reached a 63-year-old straight widow who hasn't been touched in that way in some time. (laughs) Come on. Get in line. But But don't shove, please. A talkative and devastatingly handsome massage therapist I employ at a remote spa asks me if I have kids. I say, yes, one son. He asks me if my husband is here with me, and I say, no, he died. I'm sorry, he says then. Are you lonely? I can't speak for a minute. My heart's still 26, his hand's still on me. But then, because I'm old enough to be his grandmother, I answer simply, yes. He says conversationally, I'm lonely too. He talks about how isolated the spa is, how far it is from town, where he could ride his bike and hang out with a younger, less transient crowd. He tells me about his mom, who he says is beautiful, a brilliant academic and wealthy. He tells the story of her love affair after divorcing his dad, after she buys a Jaguar and a new house. One morning she wakes up and notices the Jag is gone from the driveway just as she gets a phone call from the lover. I'm sorry, Fritzy. I needed to leave town fast. She She asks for his address. Amazingly, he gives it. She mails him the pink slip. I wonder, how can this beautiful young man be lonely? Then, how not? For a long time after the young woman's call, I think about loneliness and reaching and touch and the distances between one thing and another. The bandy-legged Mexican man who collects plastic from trash bins over the years I watch him, first energetically on foot, then with a walker as day after day he grows older and older, along with the town's evaporating elders, the muscled, topless teenage man who holds his girlfriend from behind by the neck with both hands, as if with a dog collar, in the middle of their laughing, encircling friends, one not laughing, 
a terribly skinny middle-aged homeless man in Ventura who eats his dinner of garbage can food facing the wall in a stairwell because he's embarrassed to be seen dying so abandoned. The child across the street riding his trike in large circles, speaking both sides of a dialogue. The neighbors I know only by their cars and not themselves. Loneliness, reaching, touch. Loneliness reaching for touch. This morning I sit out back. The air is still. I put a cigarette between my lips and hunch to light it with an eco-friendly match. <laughs> a gentle wind picks up, soft but efficient enough to douse the struggling flame. Okay, okay, just one more. <laughs> I say aloud. Again I strike, and just as I do, the little breeze comes from nowhere. I wait trying to feel the invisible motions. I strike again, success. Okay, okay. This is the last one, really. Who am I talking to? A place, I think. Wherever my husband went, the conversation is a hard habit to break, the man a hard act to follow. Patient husband who guarded my life, my love, my unskilled moods, arguing his small indiscretions of trash, trash removal technique, laundry colors intermixing, indulgent choices at Trader Joe's, <laughs> styles of parenting, vacation destinations. He preferred the mountains, I the sea. The moods that were my tempests of powerlessness, and he knew this, and he waited me out. Tolerance made manifest. Now tolerance learned. I think if he were here, and the phone might ring again, and it might happen to be that lonely young woman cold calling the erotic universe, I could just, I could just see him listening respectfully and nodding as she runs the inventory even she herself might be tired of by now before delivering her proclamation. And he would probably say, okay, as when our son as a boy would hand him chewed bubble gum after the sugar had been sucked out of it. <laughs> And then my husband might put the receiver gently back on its cradle after she was done. And I would ask, who was it? And he would walk over to me by the hearth fire, grab a section of the Sunday Times, and finish off his coffee before answering, as if already an afterthought. Wrong number. Then later we'd probably go out to breakfast, maybe catch a movie or walk shelf, or drive out to the citrus groves with the car heater all the way up and the windows all the way down to catch the tart, sweet scent. We loved Sundays. I still do. Tether to ankle to board to wave to foam to sand touch, self-touch, other touch, sunlight touch, Waving to friend, receiving smile back, touch, accidental gaze, touch, touching the inanimate, touching the alive, touching those related, reaching for those yet known, touching match to candle to flame to prayer, water to dirt to seed, touching a reluctant one through soft flannel shirt sleeve, felt warmth of nearness, touch, touching hot oven coil, lifting dead hand to remove wedding ring, tendering last kiss to cold palm touch, special ballet pink silk robe grazing legs as it falls to ankles touch, touch to blunt cut hair to fresh baked bread, touching teeth, tongue, throat to morning food, fingers to silent laptop keys, 
Imagined touch, real touch, tentative touch, slow, hard-pressing touch, touching water through skin, water-to-water touch. It must be a widow thing, speaking to the inanimate. I sure hate that word, widow. Even right after he died, when I wanted to be alone with my thoughts and immerse in how grateful I was to be, to have been, so loved, so long. I knew that I wasn't a widow, but a woman, a woman who had been married and whose husband died and who was still a woman, who, like everyone else, went to the grocery store, took long walks on the beach, loved her 21-year-old son, rendered gravely silent to have let go of his dad just when things were getting so complex in life. The morning after my husband died, our son walked up to me sitting at the kitchen table stood real close but not touching, like he used to do as a boy when there was something in the room he didn't like or understand. So close that I had to look up now at the six-foot-tall of him, who had once been curled safely within me. Quiet for a while, before he spoke, both of us swimming in the thick shock of disbelief, even though we knew it had been coming. Day one, he said. Day one? of dad being gone. Yes, you're right, day one. After that, I tried to track it for a while, agreeing it might help to calibrate the unbelievable with him and for myself. And when that particular silence falls between us again, I say day three or whatever it is, and he says, surprised, having forgotten in turn, yeah, you're right, day three. We trade it back and forth as the numbers grow, day 14, day 30, 90, 365, which every year seems day one again, some sad kind of calculation, like wondering where the wind starts and how how it puts matches out with such glib humor and love. Eventually he and I stop marking the days as they scab over us, harden and get picked away. Scars permanent, but lighter looking now, so only we know they're there. For 26 years while married, I don't fly because I don't want to even take a chance on losing what I know is the best time of my life. In two weeks, I'm going to the seashore in Mexico with some new Buddhist friends while my son house sits with his new girlfriend to watch over the old cat. (laughs) I've never been out of the country before elegant navy blue passport with its bright gold lettering. I'm in the backyard, almost done smoking the last cigarette. (laughs) Again. When a tiny tornado, I think it's called a dust devil, full of furious energy, suddenly forms above the ground and oddly lifts some dry maple leaves, which begin gently clacking as they dance upward. Then the wind just disappears and the leaves fall down into a tidy spiral on the ground. Incredibly beautiful, so well organized on a Sunday morning in December. The invisible wind turning and turning the world and the world turning it by turns as I contrive to personify it. Just energy, and he just energy within it, somewhere, anywhere, everywhere. Who could argue it? One heart gives birth to another, the names changing and changing. Who I'm especially grateful for is that young woman who called me so early on a Sunday morning, 
for reminding me of the utterly urgent, messy, and wonko math of humanness. Loneliness reaches touch. And if she ever calls again, this time I think I'll just say, thank you. <laughs> Jemmy Reese McDonald. Nicely done, Jemmy. Now, from the album Love, Death, Beauty, it's April Terrio and Green Man with Herringbone Sky. It was a artists and music featured on the townies podcast please visit the towniespodcast.org next up opening act written and performed by angelina martin angelina has the energy of a thousand suns now living in austin texas Angelina has her sights set on her very own stand-up show, hundreds of stick-and-poke tattoos, and world domination. It's 104 degrees. It's my first summer in Austin, and I'm watching a grown man hammer a nail directly up his fucking nose. Not just any grown man. Sideshow Kevin. I met Sideshow Kevin a couple months previous at the Tex-Mex Cafe that I worked at. He was an eccentric regular, and I was an overly enthusiastic waitress whose overt friendliness was often mistaken for flirting. This is a crude misconception that I want to refute right now. Truthfully, I only flirted for tips maybe 30% of the time. (laughs) But whether or not I consciously flirted with Sideshow Kevin, something kept him coming back for queso and chips thrice weekly. I started to suspect ulterior motives when I finally tasted our house queso for myself. That shit was mediocre at best. No way homeboy was coming here every other day just for that putrid, cheesy sludge. His intestines must look like a graveyard. I decided to get to know him better during our normal over-the-counter banter. I found out that he worked during the day at an adult toy store. I blinked slowly at him while I processed what he had just said. You mean a sex shop? I asked earnestly. That just sounds like a sex shop. He laughed at my naivete. No, silly, an adult toy store. 
He repeated the words again with no added explanation, just more <laughs> emphasis. I pressed him, and he finally told me that an adult toy store is like a regular toy store, only the toys, they're bigger. <laughs> I nodded in a way that I hope communicated, yes, I see a need for this in the world. He moved on to tell me that that was how he paid the bills, but his real passion was sideshow performing. I truthfully told him that I'd never seen a sideshow performance, and before the sentence had even left my mouth, he had invited me to attend his next show as his guest. I said, sure, I'd love to go. Still not entirely sure what a sideshow performance entailed, but we had fun chatting at the cafe, and it sounded like a weird, cool Austin thing to do, and I was in need of more friends in my new city anyway. So the following Friday night, I arrived at the location he told me to go, the Museum of Weird on East 6th Street. I immediately feel a large, sweaty hand on the small of my back. It's Sideshow Kevin, and he's wearing a bow tie. <laughs> I'm so glad you came. He breathes into my neck. Funny, I don't remember him being this creepy in the daytime. My shoulders tense up. Why is he acting like this? And then it slowly dawns on me. Dude thinks this is a date. I try to neutralize the situation. Yeah, for sure, bro. I say as platonically as I can. <laughs> He leads me through the small bizarre museum that so desperately wants to be a Ripley's, believe it or not, but so clearly isn't. <laughs> I lock eyes with a taxidermied vulture sitting on a shelf. Her open beak seems to scream at me, get out of here, bitch. But I shake my head in defeat. It's too late, Lady Vulture. It's too late. <laughs> the theater is back here. Sideshow Kevin directs me through a metal door in the back and up a creaky wooden staircase that is just begging to fall down. And we arrive at the theater, which is really just an empty office with 20 folding chairs and a soapbox. Old filing cabinets line the back wall in a calendar that reads December gathers dust on the wall. It's July. <laughs> Go have a seat, I'll be right in, he says. I have to prepare. <laughs> he disappears and leaves me alone in the room with the only other audience members, a family of three who honestly looks like they just got lost on their way to a Cracker Barrel. <laughs> I find a seat in the back row and by the time the show starts, the four of us are still the only audience members. <laughs> Welcome all! Sideshow Kevin emerges seemingly out of nowhere and takes his place at the front of the room with one foot on the soapbox. He's not wearing a cape, but he might as well be. <laughs> what a great crowd we have tonight! Where are y'all from? He asked the four of us. <laughs> the bald dad sternly says, Florida. Sideshow Kevin pauses, tries to think of a crack about Florida, evidently fails to, and moves on. Come on, Kevin, it's the easiest state to make fun of. <laughs> With all the crowd work, I start to hope maybe I've just been tricked into attending another terrible stand-up show. But then Kevin's show removes out his bag of garden tools and abolishes that possibility. He then proceeds to use those tools to maim and mutilate his poor body for the discomfort of terrified Florida family and me. 
I wish there are more people to hide behind, but unfortunately I have a perfect view. As Sideshow Kevin sticks his hand in a bear trap, trims his mustache with a chainsaw, and hammers nails up his nose. All with off-color, off-kilter jokes scattered intermittently throughout. I looked longingly at the anvil that he was about to drop on his foot and wished that he'd please drop it on me. <laughs> And now for my next act, I will be lifting people with my beard. Any volunteers? He looks directly at me. <laughs> I shrunk in my seat, willing myself to become invisible. And after a devastating eight seconds of silence passed, the mom from Florida tentatively raised her hand. <laughs> Great, Sideshow's Kevin enthused. Florida mom looked much less excited. She slowly inched towards the stage like Marie Antoinette approaching the guillotine. <laughs> she looked back with regret at her cowardly husband and son, and then her eyes met mine for a brief moment. She and I both knew that in order for this horrible show to come to an end, somebody was gonna have to fucking hang on to this guy's beard. I wasn't brave or selfless enough to volunteer, but Florida mom, she was a mother. She understood what had to be done for the greater good of the community. The sooner she does this shit, the sooner Sideshow Kevin stops holding her family hostage and they can get back to their goddamn vacation. I telepathically thanked her for her sacrifice. Once up there, Sideshow Kevin instructed her to grab two fistfuls of his beard and hang on. Begrudgingly, she did so and looked out at the three-person audience with a grimace on her face that screamed, I have an MFA in art history. <laughs> Her husband and son applauded weakly and I joined in out of guilt. The rest of the show continued on and after a brutal 90 minutes, it finally ends. We are released, but not before he asked the audience to staple tips to his chest. I want to staple a note that says, please never call me again, to his forehead, but instead I power walk to the door after the Florida family. He lets them escape, but steps in front of me. Hey, where are you going? He asked, leaning in the doorway, doing his best Jessica Rabbit impersonation. <laughs> Don't you want to stay for the after show? Ew. He winks at me and <clears throat> bites the air in my direction. <laughs> I pause and try to think of a time in my personal history that I have ever been less aroused in this moment. <laughs> Actually, Sideshow Kevin, I mean regular, normal Kevin. Uh, my oven is on fire, so I have to. But before I can finish my excuse, he lunges at me, tongue first, with his chapped lips and queso drenched beard following quickly. Without even thinking about it, I duck down, and his outstretched tongue hits my eye instead. I keel over instinctively and accidentally headbutt him in the process. We both howl in pain. What the fuck happened? He yells at me, holding his bloody nose. You licked my eyes! I yell back, clutching my soiled eyeball. You headbutted me! On accident? I'm sorry, I panicked. What? I was just trying to kiss you. Well, your beard smells like spicy cheese. Oh, don't be a bitch. Well, don't be a creep! We pause to catch our breath and nurse our respective injuries. 
I look at his stupid face. It looks remarkably unscathed. I think I may have made his nose straighter. <laughs> we sulk in the lobby together as I wait for my Uber. He holds his blood-spattered bow tie in his hand like a wounded baby bird. <laughs> Are you blind? He asks. No. Is it broken? I say. No. We marinate in silence for a while until my Uber arrives. I'm sorry, he finally grumbles as he walks me outside. You just always flirt with me when I order my food. Maybe I'm just being fucking nice, Kevin, I say, <laughs> climbing into the backseat of the Nissan Altima. Maybe I'm just doing my job. <laughs> then why do you come tonight, he asks. To be friendly. That's hella dumb. You're right, Sideshow Kevin. That is hella dumb. <laughs> I shut the door in my Uber and Kevin sarcastically waves goodbye. My Uber driver, Benny, introduces himself and makes small talk with me along the route. We arrive at my apartment and Benny turns to me with, I can only assume, it's his idea of a winning smile. So, you seem like a down girl. Let's get a drink sometime. I smile at him with all the pearly whites God gave me, get out of the passenger seat, and right before I slam the car door, I cheerfully say, no thanks. <laughs> and that was Angelina Martin. Our final piece, Young Nun on the Come Up, written and performed by Emma Bailey. I think Emma was a Dutch witch in her past life, mixing potions and giant cauldrons. In this day and age, however, Emma is content to mix seasonal recipes over the stove and hex her enemies. Let the wind bring you new energies. Let the scarf not shield your eyes. Let yourself not hide. You are at a Benedictine monastery and you are following a path. It takes you past Christ, three feet tall in a sun-bleached field. It takes you past a pond under frog-green trees, cattails, little yellow marsh marigolds, the mirror of the water and vegetable scents. The path leads you into the forest to a house at the top of a hill. It is made of stone and stained glass, and it is smaller than this room. Carved into the wood of the door is Latin. Dignare me laudare te virgo sacrata. Damihi virtuum contra hostis tuos. Allow me to praise thee, holy virgin, and give me strength against thy enemies. You're not Catholic, you're a mystical bitch. <laughs> but you know when to ask for help, you kneel at this forest shrine and pray. Mary. Give me strength. I am coming to you as a celibate woman trying to live a life that she wants. I have seen a hawk floating in the air, waiting for a different wind, a wind that is hot and fast and will take her. Mary, I want to catch my wind, but Mary, I keep getting stuck with these lame-ass dudes. <laughs> Mary, lead me not into temptation. And deliver me from evil. Bless me and keep me. Amen. There's a saying that goes, good dick will imprison you. <laughs> but you've learned by now, it don't have to be good. In the zeitgeist of casual hookups, you have wasted your damn time with a whole choir of fuckboys. <laughs> The dick that breaks the camel's back is a stay-at-home DJ. 
that breeds walking stick insects. <laughs> you let the stick insects walk all over you, and you let him walk all over you, too. He doesn't have a car, so you're the one driving him back and forth just to have to fight for your right for a condom. He says it's a valuable increase in sense of connection, but he's also enjoying a sense of connection with another girl who looks just like you, has your same hair, and your same name. Mm -hmm. So your celibacy didn't start out as, I take this sacred oath, (laughs) so much as it was, I'm fucking done with this shit. (laughs) This would be 2016, the year of the nun. No more cycles of infatuation or repulsion. You will go as slow as you damn well please. Now, here you are at the virgin shrine at the bottom of the ninth month of your celibacy. And this is why you pray. (laughs) You are living with the boy of your dreams for a whole month. He's an old friend, and you have tons in common. Embodiment, neuroscience, contemplative practices, each other. You've flown cross-country to help him with his research, and in exchange, he's paid your rent to sublet a room in his house on College Hill. It's an old house, a block from the river, on the corner of Power Street. Power. This is what it feels like to be beautiful and untouchable in his house, but also power. This is what it feels like to be so attracted to him and struggling to hold on to the second coming of your virginity. (laughs) Today is the last Friday of the month, and you have been a successful celibate bitch. (laughs) Mostly your love for each other feels brotherly-sisterly. You go on walks together, you cook meals together, and he's the one that takes you to the Benedictine Monastery and the Unitarian Church and the Rabbi's House. Today has been a long day of data collection with study participants. The probe you tape on their hand shoots a laser through skin and uses the Doppler effect to give a reading of the rate of change of blood flow. You watch him watch the line on the monitor. This data is of uncertain relevance, but to a scholar in Russia and your 20-year-old friend, that line on the screen could be a marker of embodied cognition. Our bodies are so much more complex and elegant than the content of our thoughts and plans. Back home, you change out of your secretary fetish pencil skirt and into your favorite (laughs) jeggings. You settle into reading Being Peace by Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. The book says, Breathing in, I take in peace. Breathing out, I smile. This is a good moment. I have not seen this moment before. You bring your attention to your breath. Your belly swells and dips, and you lose yourself to this pleasure. The afternoon is warm, and you are sweating softly in your bedroom with the lavender walls and palm plant that shakes with the breeze. He comes through the open door and lies across from you on the bed, his head next to your feet. He takes the forgotten book and reads to you. You are sinking deeper into this bliss, and he takes his foot in your hand like he owns it. He's done this before. He's always giving foot rubs to friends. This is normal. (laughs) He stops reading and says, I like the way you breathe. This is why you pray. (laughs) He's not squeezing anymore. His fingers exert no pressure, just stroking, whisper soft, the gold hair on your toes and slowly circling the mound of your ankle. Your breathing takes on a different slant. Concentration turns to modulating the breath to keep it rhythmic and regular. You will not let it catch in your throat. 
You will not gasp. Friends give each other foot rubs, and you will not be the one to cross the line. <sighs> Suddenly, there is a warmth and wetness like all of Rhode Island humidity is concentrated on the crown of your big toe. But then it's not the summer heat, and his mouth is on your foot. <laughs> this is why you pray. <laughs> the air is thick, and time is wet. You think... I have not seen this moment before. This is a good moment. <laughs> friends do not put friends' feet in their mouths. <laughs> this isn't Netflix and chill. This is Thich Nhat Hanh and foot worship. <laughs> you're late to Shabbat and your jeggings are flooded. You rinse your hands three times, saying, Laheim, Laheim, Laheim. This is life, man. You're sure in the history of Shabbat there has been at least one other bitch who showed up to the rabbi's house still wet. <laughs> Eat your challah bread and chill. He only waits until you're walking back up the cobblestone alley home to push you up against the wall and put his mouth on you. The vibe is not brotherly, sisterly. Fur touches your ankle. A baby skunk is walking between you down the dark alley. In traditional medicine stories, the skunk teaches how to comprehend a warning. Many times in life, our instinct can foresee trouble ahead, but our mind gets in the way and inhibits this knowledge. You stare where the skunk was. Inside the house, no one is home. On the bed where you are breathing, he kisses you like he hasn't eaten. But when he tries to take your shirt off, you keep it on. You go to bed separately. You don't do the thing. The spirit between you feels unstable. It feels like lightning storms, swift transitions, green to white. You catch the train to Santa Fe. You are there to take a class with a psychologist about the rhythm of the nervous system, its peaks of activation, and its valleys of calm. The Zen Center where it is held is all adobe and fruit trees, and this year's late frost never came, so rows of pink peaches and red apples drag branches to the ground. You too feel heavy with your own fruit. You can still feel the ring of his mouth on your toe like a circular burn while you sit on your cushion meditating in the zendo. You are a gentle bodhisattva, and you are a resplendent slut. <laughs> Back in Ojai, you go sit on your secret rock in the hills, a boulder split down the middle that looks like a giant pussy. <laughs> this is always where you go alone and burn Palo Santo and smoke half a joint and take all your clothes off and sit on warm sandstone like a celibate nudist. But today this hummingbird keeps flying so aggressively close that you almost have to swat it away from your face. Know your omens, bitches. <laughs> Hummingbirds bring us the gift of beauty. If a hummingbird has come to you, it may be saying that you can't keep a gift from the creator all to yourself. It needs to be shared. Hummingbird asks, Is there some gift that you have to give to the people that you are holding back? You wonder, Should I have sex? Should I be giving my gift to the people? There is this one Ojai boy. You used to make out with him in the olive groves when you were 15, and lately you've been running into him around town. 
So, you do what any mystical bitch would do. You put on the choral music of 15th century German nun Hildegard von Bingham and ask the runes if you should abandon your celibacy. <laughs> you cast the stones over a painting of one of Hildegard's visions of the naked body of Christ. The first rune, Issa, is a long, straight pole. You lay it between the painting's legs. The second rune is Burkana. The last rune, Wunjo. Issa, stand still, that which impedes. Ice, Burkana, growth, rebirth. Wunjo, light, joy. With your celibacy, it was like you were trying to answer these questions. How do you abstain from sex and still move through the world in a sensuous way? And beneath that, can you find a love that says, come as you are? You bring the boy to your secret spot in the hills. His eyes are the same color as the chaparral behind him, and his long, curly hair blows in the warm wind. <sighs> A strong force draws you together. This is the affair that ends your year of the nun. It is so sweet. It is so juicy. He is so good to you. But when you're not with him, your ears steam with the dreams you have dropped. It ends. You see yourself as Hildegard when she is old, being carried around the abbey by two hot young lumberjacks yelling out, move aside, get me to the top of that mountain, I gotta go tell someone else how incredible life is. You see yourself as that hawk alone in the sky. There is in you this hunger. The path calls your legs to stride. Let yourself not hide. Say it. Let yourself not hide. One more time, bitches. Let yourself not hide. Hallelujah. Amen. You just heard from Emma Bailey. I'm from here. Here's the story. Please join us every other Tuesday for a new round of Freshly Minted Stories. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio, and we teach people to launch their stories loudly and unapologetically into the world. To laugh more, risk more, and have bigger lives. The Townies Podcast is co-produced by Lily Brown, Asa Larmonth, and Ken Eros. Studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. The Townies podcast is in part made possible by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai, a small town with big stories. You can find out more about us at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. Can we try and Angelina has the energy of a thousand suns? Yeah. A thousand suns inside of her, you might think, God, I thought twins was bad. <laughs> Holy shit, she must be big as a house. <laughs> no one else thinks that, Ken.